0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, where does work fit into your set of New Year's resolutions? Maybe you're hoping to find a new job this year, or a job. Maybe you're resolved to work harder, or to ease off and spend more time with your family, or or more time pursuing personal goals. Work can be completely demoralizing, as anyone who has ever hated their job knows. And it can also be a source of pride and self-fulfillment. Most of us have no choice but to work for nearly all of our adult lives. But what is work? What does it do for us and to us? And how do we fit work into a meaningful life? Henry David Thoreau, one of the more thoughtful people in the history of the planet, had a lot to say about work. He was himself an incredibly hard worker, and yet somehow he's gotten the reputation of being the guy who didn't work, who left it all behind for a simple life in his cabin in the woods by Walden Pond. Can we reconcile these two images of Thoreau, and can we take any lessons from Thoreau and his writings about work. We'll talk to Thoreau scholar and expert Jonathan Van Bell, co-author of the new book, Henry at Work, Thoreau on Making a Living, today on the History of Literature. Mm, Hello, hello, hello. I'm Jack Wilson. Exciting to be exciting. (laughs) Excited. To be talking to you today. Let's just get straight to it. Throw on work. I hope I have worked up your appetite for that. That's part of my job here, part of my duties. I'm a podcast host and a family man. There's work in there too, and I've been a worker so oh, since I don't. I suppose my first job as a hauler of typewriters. Way back there is a is a teen, maybe a tween when I started that. Right through my gigs as a farmhand and a carny and a truck driver, a house painter, a teacher, and all the rest. Work, work, and more work. Sometimes this has been a joy. More often it's been toil that I endure, if not resent. But what is literature, if not a chance to hear from some of the greatest minds in the history of the world, and what they think about essential subjects like love and friendship and our place in the universe, and things like work? which is also very essential. It truly is part of our essence, what we work, how we work, what it does to us. We'll talk to Jonathan Van Bell about that, and then we will hear from esteemed literary historian Andrew Pedigree about his choice for the last book he will ever read. But first, Jonathan Van Bell. Okay, joining me now is Jonathan Van Bell, an author, independent scholar, philosopher, and zenithist who lives in Oregon. He's here today to discuss a new book, Henry at Work, which he co-authored with John Keg. Jonathan Van Bell, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks for having
1: me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So zenithism, there was a zenithism connected to a literary avant-garde movement that came out of Europe in the 1920s. But from what I gather, your zenithism is something different. Uh, What is Zenithist philosophy?
1: Yeah, it is. It's same name, very different. Uh, So Zenithist philosophy is basically the prospect that in an infinite natural system, infinitely many basically natural beings will evolve out biologically, Mm -hmm. technologically to a point of, I would say, sort of a maximal technological scientific capacity, you know, kind of limit, not necessarily omnipotence because of certain boundaries, metaphysical boundaries. But it's the idea that if we are in an infinite natural system, which is a live option in terms of physics, Mm -hmm. then the probability of their life being out there is one. But not only just one, meaning it's there, but it would be out there an infinite amount of times, um, most likely. So I did a book where I took that basic premise and thought about the many implications of that if it were true.
0: Right. So what does that mean for us? And does it mean anything to us in our everyday life?
1: Yeah, so that's the thing is, I don't know if any of the implications are that normative. I don't think it necessarily gives us a guide to life. It's a speculative thesis. So depending on how potent you think science and technology could be, like at, the, at some kind of metaphysical limit, it might indicate something almost on the line of astrotheology, theology kind of a godlike power or if you think science and technology for whatever reason have a very low limit either it's self-destructive at some point you get a great filter effect or it just naturally metaphysically it bottoms out and the civilizations get to a very limited point and they can't interact they can't beat the vast interstellar distances or other hurdles then there's no effect on us but if you do think that science and technology have a, a very, they have a long way to go. They have a metaphysical cap that is unimaginably high. You might think that there's a, a presence, a very advanced technological scientific presence that might have some relation to us in some way or another. What that might be, I have no idea. You know, is is I try to. It's an extrapolation on cosmology biology and evolution it's not a sense that there are ufos or anything like that so yeah i think in a a nutshell it, it depends if it has an effect on you but there's no clear normative implication for for how to live your life day to day
0: Mm. Well, let's pivot to Thoreau because that's our main topic here. But I do kind of like the idea that Thoreau is somebody who was sort of testing extremes in a way too. And so (laughs) it's a little more, uh, a little closer to home, but it's kind of a What I like about him is that in a lot of ways, he serves as kind of that example at one end of a a spectrum. And, And whether it's something to aspire to or just something to learn from, seeing how he stretched life out in the way that he did feels like almost like a thought experiment sometimes.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting because he has a lot of comments that are more normative. So he definitely, unlike our previous subject, he has a lot to say about how our lives might be better organized so his social experiments and those extremes are are meant to really teach us lessons about how to live a better life how to live in in his words a more elevated life
0: mm-hmm. and you use the word maximal or maximally that seems like something that Thoreau was all about
1: yeah i think he well yeah he definitely wanted to get the most out of life. He wanted to live as close to the bone of life. And you could call that maximal in a sense, I think.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I don't recall him using that kind of particular language. He, he preferred the wilderness to civilization. And I think a lot of people would consider that a pretty extreme way. But he, he loved it. And he says, in wildness is the preservation of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he definitely, and he said things, he prefers swamps to like the uh, gardens at Versailles. Right. So he it was a character, I mean, it considered eccentric by some in his time and
2: after.
0: Right. Okay. So your book uh, specifically talks about him at work. And you point out at the beginning of it that we sometimes think of Thoreau as a dreamy loafer or a fraudulent freeloader, but this really misses something central about Thoreau, and that's his commitment to work. So what's some of the evidence that the multifaceted Thoreau was also a hard worker?
1: Well, you know, he says, he gives it a great, he's a great answer to that himself. He went to Harvard, that was his alma mater. On the 10th anniversary of his graduation, he got a questionnaire and it says, you know, basically like, what are you doing with your great Harvard education? And he wrote <laughs> back a list of kind of what he's his occupations. And he writes, and I quote, I am a schoolmaster, a private tutor, a surveyor, a gardener, a farmer, a painter, I mean a house painter, a carpenter, a mason, a day laborer, a pencil maker, a glass paper maker, which is basically sandpaper. Uh, a writer and sometimes a poetaster, which means an inferior poet. So here he is. He's like, you know, this Harvard questionnaire that says, are you going to, you know, how's your basically your teacher or a a theologian or a pastor or something like that? And he's saying, well, I paint houses. I'm a carpenter. I'm a mason. I do day labor for someone who graduated from Harvard. And he's putting it up front and center, the importance of that kind of work, that kind of labor. Right. He writes in Walden that he found the occupation of a day laborer the most independent of any. And, you know, a high value for Thoreau was that independence, that self-sufficiency. So I think the evidence is is clear that he did a lot of physical labor and a lot of cognitive labor as well and was proud of it.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And we see that in Walden where he, for the Walden House, he he cuts down the trees, he shingles the house himself, he digs the cellar, he, he's hauling stones for the chimney, and and when the door needs a latch, he forges it himself, he builds his bed. I mean, he really is sort of taking a kind of, it's almost like a, a meditative pride or something, you know, that, that he would view the, the work of it as... Uh, you know you you don't just go out and buy a, a ready-made bed or or have someone else do the latch for you but you you devote yourself to that as a task and and benefit from it
1: exactly and I think it goes to his philosophy and his principles directly his ethical principles above all so he put a lot of emphasis on self-sufficiency but it really is a concern for not exploiting others not to, he, he urges us to get off the backs of others, which is why he reexamined his own work and, and why in the very first sentence of Walden, his most famous book, obviously, he writes that, you know, when I wrote the following pages, he lived alone and so on and so on. The very end of that sentence, he says, and earned my living by the labor of my hands only. Mm. And he is very Again, putting up front that labor element, that doing it myself. And, and he talks about how can a man be a philosopher and not maintain his vital heat, what he calls his vital heat, his metabolism, his nutrition, etc., by better methods than other men. So he's, he's definitely a concern with he doesn't want to exploit others. Mm. Uh, he does, he's not trying to be some heroic survivalist. He doesn't want to exploit people. He suggests that you cannot be a philosopher and not consider your own work ethically. So I think that is is the spirit of his principles in at Walden and after Walden.
0: Where did he get this? Was this coming from his, his parents and his upbringing? Or was it part of uh, uh, his culture? Or did it come out of his philosophical readings and inquiries?
1: I think a little bit of all of that. So mm-hmm. he always an energetic kind of activated man from youth. He would build a boat. He built a boat with his brother pretty young. He was very um, he loved to go out into the wilderness and collect things and write things. And but his parents for sure were an influence on him. Uh, John and Cynthia Thoreau. Cynthia, uh, his mother ran a boarding house business at the Thoreau house. She was an influence on him, especially that kind of hospitality. I think one thing that people might not understand is that Walden Pond was a kind of open house. He held a watermelon party there. He hosted a uh, an abolitionist meeting there. He welcomed people. And I think that that his mother, Cynthia, was a role model. And, mm, mm-hmm. and one other person, another another woman who we talked about in the book that was a role model on his work ethic and his economic views was um Lydia Mariah Child, who she she wrote a famous work called The Frugal Housewife or the Frugal American Housewife in about 1829. She also did juvenile fiction, she did novels like Habamak. She so Lydia Mariah Child she covers household economy, home ec, often now called family and consumer sciences, but her work is peppered with all kinds of philosophical asides, all kinds of comments about you know, hard work, but also the other side of that coin, which is frugality. And uh, Thoreau's Walden, particularly the first chapter, which is called Economy, is very much influenced by that that Lydia Mariah Child's view. So he was he got that work ethic from all these sources, but I think it's worth noting he got it from very domestic sources: his mom doing the business boarding house, Lydia Mariah Child, who did this work on how to maintain your home.
2: Mm.
0: And was this growing out of, I mean, the the political economy of 19th century America? I mean, certainly, I, I guess America and Europe as well, the, the move to industrialization, and he seems very sensitive to that and attuned to it. I'm, I'm wondering if he's seeing some kind of uh, Marxian views of the alienation of labor and the way that people in factories are going to start feeling about you know, the factory work and their role in it, or if he's responding to slavery and the feeling of, you know, the profits that uh, the Northerners are taking, even if they don't own slaves, but that they're benefiting from this system of slavery. Or was he connecting that, or was he looking elsewhere for the source of what he thought work was and should be?
1: Well, I think he was definitely part of his time in a certain way and, and not in, a, in the 19th century American, particularly New England cultures. So in a way, he was, he was different. He was radical. Tolstoy, who was influenced by Thoreau, particularly his civil disobedience, he wrote in a letter to a, a conscientious objector named Eugen Heinrich Schmidt. He writes that Thoreau, uh, like no one paid attention, and I'll, I'll quote from this letter here, Uh, He was, Thoreau was the first to say so 50 years ago about civil disobedience and that element. At that time, Tolstoy says, no one paid any attention to his refusal to pay poll taxes to support the American government and the Mexican-American war in that case. They seemed so strange, Thoreau's proposals. The refusal was explained on the ground of eccentricity. So, Tolstoy, even 50 years later, is like, this guy was... Uh, you know, crying in the wilderness a little bit. But on the other hand, he was radical in the direction of the reforms that many New Englanders agreed with. Mm. Like, as you mentioned, slavery, he was absolutely an abolitionist. He was a very uh, ardent abolitionist, not a compromiser in in any way. So he embodied those reforms. And I think he was ahead of his time. And one particular example is his support of John Brown. So John Brown, who, uh, and others who were Participated in the raid at Harper's Ferry. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: At the time, a lot of people in Concord and New England, and even abolitionists, thought, okay, John Brown going too far too fast. But then come the Civil War, that New England and everyone started to rah-rah John Brown. He was celebrated. So that radicality in the direction of reform, that's how he kind of responded to 19th-century American culture. As far as Marx, we know that, so the first volume of Marx's Capital wasn't published until about five years after Thoreau's death. So Thoreau obviously wouldn't have had a chance to absorb that complex economic philosophy. However, I'd stress the the complex economic philosophy is something Thoreau didn't quite elaborate. He He is an economic thinker, not an economist in the capital E sense. He's a social thinker, but not a sociologist. He's not like Weber. But... What I like about Thoreau's views on work is the style in which he presents them. They're more open-ended than conclusive, more suggestive, more anecdotal. And because of that, I think they're they're more personal. They're more personally activating than a lot of the more abstract economic work. Mm. So he looks towards these radical changes, but he presents them in ways that aren't uh, analytic, but they are touching memorable poetic imagistic and that like poetry i think that allows people to think through it themselves in a more intimate way than they would if they just saw a chart or if they had a very complex glossary of economic terms so his i think what the direction he went in is less so the certain different ideas and reforms that he he saw but how he presented them and how he lived them out instead of just armchair discussions, let's say. He, he tried to embody these things in his actual life.
2: Mm.
0: Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with more from Jonathan Van Bell. Hey, ups! The Cat in the Headcast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat Cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we're back. So I'm I'm wondering, since we were talking about Marx and Thoreau, I'm a little unclear as to what advice or what Thoreau's stance would be to modern capitalism. And On the one hand, it's creating a lot of work, and, and I'm wondering if he was energized by that or if he was scared of where it might lead. Did he see problems with work being something that would be potentially kind of devastating and, and conditions could be harsh and, and people could be unfulfilled. Or did he view it as, well, no, you have an opportunity there to work an honest day's work for an honest day's pay and this could be a good thing?
1: Yeah, so I would say his views on capitalism, modern capitalism are complex. And I think the first thing to say is that he did participate in many ways in the capitalist economy of his time. So mm-hmm. he sold goods such as Thoreau brand pencils. Right. He sold services such as his surveying services, which was his main employment towards the end of his life. So there's that participation there to consider always. But he does note in Walden that money is not required to buy uh, what he calls one necessary of the soul. And by that, he means things that are keep your vital heat up. So things that heat, clothing to some extent, food, of course. These you don't really need money or if you're going to talk more metonymically, you don't need you don't need capital. You don't need the goods of kind of a modern economy to get these things. And he knew that from his vast his understanding of the natives of uh, that had been in in, in Concord in New England. So he does see modern capitalism, I think, as gratuitous in a way. He thinks it's more than we need. It's it's Mm -hmm. doing things that aren't really necessary. It has these benefits. It makes things easier to some extent, but it has costs. The easier thing is not necessarily the best thing for you. So I don't think he'd be enthusiastic about the direction of the work today because he's familiar as a kind of ultimate localist. Be where you are, get rooted where you are. And the trend from his time to ours has been more globalization. So you know that supply chains are more freighted now with exploitation. I mean, there was slavery in his time, but we still have slavery in the world. There's a lot of child labor, unfortunately. There's a lot of exploitation of of animals in all of these supply chains. And so I think his view would be that the globalization trend has alienated us even more from that direct experience of, of the earth. And our work is now perhaps more implicated, unfortunately, than it might have otherwise been. Our work is more these multinational conglomerates and others who hover above even national boundaries, to say nothing of state or local boundaries, have this kind of denaturing culture, I think he would think. So his his view of work is, I think, very in tension with what we see today. He would want a massive reexamination by everyone, pretty much. <laughs>
0: So how did he reconcile the pencil making, uh, which was sort of a family business, as I understand it? On the one hand, it seems like a perfect example of an Adam Smith and the pin factory. And, you know, it's a lot easier for for someone to make millions of pencils in a factory that's devoted to it and then sell them. And, and it's a lot easier for me to buy a pencil than it would be for me to set out and make one from a tree or something. But on the other hand, Thoreau seems like he's kind of a do-it-yourself guy who you could say the same thing about building a house or digging a, a basement or any of those things. So what what are we exactly supposed to do? How do we figure out the work that we should be expending and the effort we should be expending and and what we should be instead working in order to have money to pay for things.
1: Yeah, I mean I think he would recommend forms of work that are more tied to local conditions, forms of work that are more earthy and I mean to some extent simpler. I think office life is anathema to him and he makes comments about how horrible when he he walks, he begins his day and he sees someone in a in a storefront sitting at a basically a, a clerk's desk or something and and then at the end of the day after his his surveying work or his other some of his other jobs doing gardening say he sees that same person kind of in the same position that sedentary thing i think is one thing you should <laughs> consider in your work how sedentary are you right uh, how much are you experiencing being just outside how much are you experiencing those sensuous elements to life and he definitely has a soft spot for physical labor. He, so he has this great quote in Walden where he talks about fishermen and hunters and woodchoppers and, and that kind of out in the woods, out in the fields occupation. And he says that they're in a, in a peculiar sense they're part of nature themselves. They're often in a more favorable mood for observing nature than even philosophers and poets. And he says, because the, these philosophers and poets often approach nature with expectation. So he's, he's saying, like, look, these occupations, which, you know, he'd have some critiques of, say, hunters. He had he he didn't think it was necessary to eat animals. These occupations put these people in contact with nature in a way that is healthy. It is more spiritual, even you, you don't necessarily think of the woodchopper as a spiritual profession but I think he's trying to like invert these expectations. And his talk about human elevation, it's funny that he notes that poets and philosophers are at a disadvantage here. So people who think, okay, I have the leisure time, I have the sedentary conditions, I have all these things that I need, I have the, the AC or the heater or whatever, they might be actually at a disadvantage to having a better life. And I can't help but think of Emerson here, who is Thoreau's friend, Emerson, who wrote a a very famous work called Nature, which was very influential on Thoreau. And Emerson lived in a large house called the Mance. He was friends with Thoreau, so they had a lot of walking and conversations. But Emerson, I think, had that more, slightly more alienated, if not much more alienated relationship to nature than than Thoreau. Uh, Emerson went to Europe. He was still part of that Eurocentric kind of literary crowd. Thoreau was like, no, I'd rather go to Oregon than to Europe. So I think the idea is, the if you're gonna look for work, do consider your health, your mental health, your physical health, and your relationship to the root of your being, which is nature. So it's not like, oh, you have to get that CEO position. In fact, that might be the worst thing for you. You should probably do something that is, get your hands in the soil to some extent, or being at least outdoors
0: and he even would connect leisure to i don't know if work is the right word but being productive in in a way thinking that that with the idea that if you're if you're going for a walk that's a good time for rumination for example
1: yeah absolutely yes he he recommends the work of rumination he he talks about he uses the analogy of a camel in his essay walking which is a later essay he he says the camel is the only beast which ruminates when walking. And he, he put that camel advice into practice. So he would walk for four or six hours often. And and often that was incorporated into his work as a surveyor or a day laborer. So it's like not just free walking. It's, it's tied to these tasks. He's wrote several thousand words or so on these walks. He would write notes with a pencil in the field. They'd be transferred to his books and and all that, but you don't have to be a writer to get that benefit I think the idea is when you're walking, yes, it's leisure, but leisure is an opportunity for certain actions, certain elevations, and just not you don't have to write it He was an incredible writer, his journals go up to about two million words, which is more than a King James Bible. <laughs> Uh, So, of course, that was that was a big thing for him. But just reflecting on your life. So, for instance, if someone is a a fisherman or someone who's doing uh, field work in other ways between jobs, you can self-examine and do the work of really weighing up the costs and benefits of what you're doing. Don't just as, as much as you can. Don't just blank out. Don't reach for the this high fat, high salt food and and do all these things that may be kind of dead in you, but really tie that leisure to something that is actually healthier.
2: Right.
0: What was the response of his contemporaries to this advice and his positions? Did, did he inspire others to try to be more purposeful in their lives or did they think he was crazy or what was, what was the general response?
1: Well, it was a mixed response, as you can imagine. There were some who thought he was just a Diogenes living this kind of wild, imaginary life. Even a kind of friend of his, Nathaniel Hawthorne, kind of takes a slight dig. He repudiated all modes of getting a living. And he, he said he, he's trying to, Thoreau is trying to live an Indian life among civilized men, which I would say is Hawthorne's maybe a little underdeveloped view of indigenous life ways. But he, Hawthorne liked him. Emerson had a similar kind of mixed commentary on Thoreau, they, they kind of had a strain in their friendship later on. And, and, and in Thoreau's, when Thoreau died, Emerson gave a eulogy in which he basically said, I wish he hadn't spent so much time in the Huckleberries, leading Huckleberry parties. I wish he had spent more time doing the kind of Emersonian work of essay writing and all that. So there was a mixed response about how he lived. But at this point, I think more and more people are realizing and since the 60s and the environmental movement and so on, slow food, slow living, et cetera, et cetera, how right he was about how we're living. And if anything, maybe mirroring more those indigenous life ways than the Emersonian life or the Nathaniel Hawthorne life. He did get favorable reviews for Walden. I believe George Eliot was a really favorable review. Yeah, um, it's clearly now he's taken off.
0: (laughs) Right. You know, it almost reminds me of a a friend I had in college who was a brilliant scholar, and he had all these languages, and he could do all of these things, and he wanted to be a chef. And there Mm -hmm. were a good friend of his was kind of disgusted and said, you know, you were not put on this earth to be a chef. Other people can do that. You were put on this earth to, you know, do the advanced scholarship that only you are capable of. And maybe that resonated with him, but it also makes me wonder... You know, maybe that was the wrong approach. It seems like people could have said to Thoreau, like, why are you building Emerson's Fence? Why don't you write another book and do things that only you can do? And Thoreau would probably say, if, I, if I'm if i not building the fence, then I can't do those things. This is part of my process and part of who I am and becoming an individual and doing the things that I'm doing with my hands and with my muscles are part of what makes my mind able to do the things that it does.
1: Exactly, you know, there's, I, when I think about Thoreau sometimes, I think there's this book uh, I came across a long time ago, I don't re- quite recall if this is the exact title, but it's something like, don't do what your brain wants. Something like that. Mm. And it's the idea that oftentimes what we think is good for us on kind of an instinctive level or a quick level, efficiency level, is actually harmful for us. So, sedentary lifestyles are generally harmful for us and they have their benefits. So, the idea is oh, you should have been this. Oh, you could have been that. Thoreau definitely had to deal with that view. But he wanted, I think, a very direct bodily knowledge of where he was, of his life, a direct experience of these powerful forces. A, I would call it a sensuous wisdom in his work. And his life and and to integrate those more so to blend them more. So it's not like work and life. It's it's one continuous experience that is positive, that is elevated. So I definitely think people out there who are thinking about that, well, the status of this job or the functionality of that job, just take a breath, take a beat with Thoreau and consider what is it that really think through has that been going well for you? Hmm. Is it not exactly the vision you have for your life? And what maybe is your body telling you, for lack of a better expression? What is your body telling you?
0: I want to end with the place where Walden ends, but where your book begins which is the last paragraph of Walden is, I'm going to just read it here. I do not say that John or Jonathan will realize all this, but such is the character of that morrow, which mere lapse of time can never make to dawn. The light which puts out our eyes is darkness to us. Only that day dawns to which we are awake. There is more day to dawn. The sun is but a morning star. Now, when I read this, I thought you made it up. Because I thought, "How does this have I do not say that John or Jonathan will realize all this, and you and your co-author are John and Jonathan yep. um I, was this happy coincidence, do you think, or some kind of cosmic connection going on here? How did this happen?
1: Well, it was an early realization between us that <laughs> the last paragraph of Walden cites John and Jonathan, and he's referring to John Bull and, and uh, Brother Jonathan. John Bull is the sort of personification of the British spirit, and mm. Brother Jonathan is the personification of the kind of wild American spirit. So he's talking to the, the Anglosphere here. But it was an early kind of like, wow, that's that's great, obviously, for our epigraph. <laughs> um, and I, what I take away from that, too, is I know he's not directly addressing us, but all of us, but as a humility. You know, he mm. says, you're not going to realize all this. And I think it's one of those things with Thoreau where and with a lot of these people, thinkers and writers, the more you know, the more you realize how little, you know, his journals are enormous. There are so many side paths in studying Thoreau. And I would recommend to your listeners, go walk with Thoreau for a few days and find these realizations that are out there in his work.
0: Do you think John and Jonathan have realized all this or are starting to realize all this at least
1: absolutely not we have not realized all this <laughs> there's endless realization and i think that's I realize that it's 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 the school day every day um, uh, but there, there's a freer school out there and that's and that's nature
0: the book is called henry at work jonathan van bell thank you so much for joining me on the history of literature
1: it was wonderful to be here thank you for having me
0: And finally today, we talked to Andrew Pedigree. After our conversation about the book at war, I asked him this special bonus question. Okay, we're joined now by Andrew Pedigree, author of several books about books. Andrew, this question comes from a listener who asks, What do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written.
3: Well, that is a very tough and original question. Uh, and when I read it, what do you want your last book to be? I immediately thought, what's the last book I might write? Right. <laughs> but I've, I've got it right now. The last book, well, the last book I will ever read. I would like it to be the first book by one of my graduate students because they, for a graduate student, for, for any, anyone, the first book you have published, it's a very exciting moment, and it would be a connection for me in my declining months and weeks with what I've spent my life doing, which is launching young people on their careers. Mm.
0: Have you had that experience before of a graduate student of yours writing a book?
3: Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say about 20 of them now have oh, a book yeah. in print. And there's nothing, nothing to compare with when you first get the package with uh, the first copies. It's, uh, it's a moment. Uh, it's, a, it's almost like the moment when you first see see one of your children being born. I mean, it, it really is very emotional.
0: Ah, oh, that is. I'm tearing up a little bit here. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's just wonderful. Okay, Andrew Pedigree, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature.
3: My pleasure.
0: Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Andrew Pedigree for joining me and to Jonathan Van Bell. Of course, you can find their books at bookstores everywhere. Wasn't Andrew's answer sweet? There's a good argument for the role of work in one's life, a way that work has made things a little more meaningful. Andrew sounds like the kind of teacher I'd like to have had, and in fact, I guess I did have when I was fortunate enough to speak to him about the book at war. You can find that episode in our archives. We'll be back next week with Mike Palindrome and some other goodies. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.